Uh, if, you, if you are new, my name is Bland. Um, that is my real name. Uh, I can tell you the story sometime. But uh, it's good to have you with us uh, today. We are in a series through John. As you've already heard, John 12, uh, uh, 8, 12 through 30 read. We're actually doing a much larger section. We're actually going through 59, uh, but didn't want to have that read right off the bat because that's around six or seven minutes straight um, <laughs> and decided to just break it up, have the first part read as an introduction. I'll read other parts of it through the rest of our time. But when you have a text like this, and hopefully you already heard like just some absolute truth bombs, and if you keep going in this text, there are there's like co- multiple coffee cup verses in this, uh, in this passage, and, and you can either kind of break it up. I was looking at it this week, and I was like, man, I kind of want to do about a three-week series on this, um, but uh, that's one approach. The other approach is to take it as one unit, at which there's a real benefit to this, because what the entire passage is, is just a dialogue, a one dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees, or who were the religious leaders of the time. And so we're taking it, we're getting, as one unit, we're getting to kind of see those themes develop and how that actually happens. The text is an argument that goes back and forth between the Pharisees, and, but it isn't just them. It isn't just Jesus and Pharisees. They are in, he's standing in the temple courts uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles. There would be, as, as you've heard over the last couple of weeks since we began John 7, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles was a huge event, probably the actually largest event, uh, annual festival of the Jewish community that came to Jerusalem. There would have been tens of thousands of people on the Temple uh, Mount at that time uh, and would have certainly been overhearing parts of, if not the entire uh, conversation that Jesus was having. This argument goes back and forth. Jesus would make statements and then he would uh the pharisees would respond with accusations and then he would make some accusations of his own uh to to uh put them in their place but they there are uh it's pretty harsh jesus is accused by the pharisees of being a false witness an illegitimate son a liar a samaritan which is about as low as you could call somebody at that time if you were jewish i don't don't even know what a comparable slander would be today, but it's, it's pretty low, like a Yankees fan or something like that. But um, <laughs> uh, demon-possessed, probably a connection there, uh, arrogant, self-aggrandizing or self-glorifying, and then they finally just decide we have to shut him up, and they picked up stones to stone him to death. Uh, the response, um, Jesus says these Pharisees have no knowledge of God. They're worldly, not heavenly in their thinking. They're not keeping the law. They are not children of Abraham. They are, in fact, children of Satan. As a result, they are liars, potential murderers, and slaves to sin. So you can see this is a good conversation. I mean, this would have been uh, like the office tea, right? Like, I mean, the next day, if you'd been a part of this, what was said? Oh, ooh, they said that to Jesus? And, oh, Jesus said, you know. <laughs> it is a very weighty conversation with lots of little uh, tidbits. Um, but what's the central point here? Why is Jesus going back and forth with these religious leaders? They, they continually reveal that they don't believe in him and they don't want to follow him. And yet Jesus used these opportunities as they engaged with him to reveal truth, to, to further truth. But the point, important point was that he was not arguing about truth out here, like saying, hey, you guys, here's this truth, and you know, my opinion on this is this, and you guys think it's that. He actually spends most of his time pointing to himself. He makes these grand statements about himself, and the Pharisees continually do not get it, and in fact, um, try to kill him for it. But what is Jesus trying to do? 
And there's, there's so many contrasts in this passage, I was trying to like synthesize them. Um, but I, th- I think the central idea for us today is that Jesus brings abundant life in the face of death. Jesus brings abundant life in the face of death. One assumption that Jesus makes here in his conversation with the Pharisees and that he makes of us today as we would engage with this passage and his words here is that you and I, all of us, every human being is ultimately seeking life. Not like biological life. The Greeks actually had two words in the New Testament for life. One was bios, or where we get like biology from. The other was a zoe, which is like quality of life or essence of life. And so when Jesus says, you know, basically we're looking for life, we're not like, we're, we're, if you're here and listening, you have the bios, right? You're, you've got that down, right? You're, you're alive. Congratulations. Um, but that does not mean you're living the abundant life or full life. In fact, many of us, if we'll stop and, and, and reflect on ourselves, the decisions we make about relationships, about how we spend our money, about our goals and purposes in life, what we're doing for work, what we do with our free time, all of these things are driven by an idea that there is something better. That there's an experience or a place to get where we actually can experience a contentment with life. Now, None of us have experienced that yet, and Jesus knows that. So Jesus is saying, hey guys, it's me. Hi, I'm the solution. It's me. <laughs> You're the problem. That's, that, we, we can all sing that line with her, right, with Taylor, but, but Jesus is saying, no, I'm not the problem. I'm the solution. It's me, Right? And he wants, and he's trying to bring us not to a set of ideas. He's not trying to introduce us to some knowledge. He's not trying to help us to, to, to uh, troubleshoot our lives, to self-actualize. He's inviting us to himself. And where else would he invite us? We'll see how Jesus is the abundant life in the face of death in three contrasts in this passage. Life and, uh, uh, light and darkness, freedom and slavery, truth, lies, and then a final truth he lands about ultimate reality or absolute reality. <clears throat> so let's look at these contrasts. The first one's already been read, but it is Jesus as the light is the light in the darkness. Jesus is the light or light in the darkness. As we've talked about the Feast of Tabernacles, this was an event to celebrate or to remember God leading <clears throat> the Israelite people out of bondage in Egypt. But what we haven't talked about or one of the things that they would have gotten very, very clearly in that moment was a light played a huge factor in the original event, but also in the, in the feast. So if you remember, how did God lead his people at night as they left the promised land? It's a pillar of fire, right? It was a light leading them. And then they had, as Moses was writing down the, the, uh, the, the Pentateuch or the, the law, he, he, he described a God in Genesis 1 who is light, who made light, who's, who created light. And the Old Testament's full of references about God being light. And so during this festival, they would, uh, they would have these uh, huge torches that would be set up on top of columns around the temple mount. And there were, each of them was something like 65 gallons of oil that was for each of these. So you can imagine how big they were. And they would light up the whole temple mount and then the people would stay up all night celebrating and partying. It'd be a huge festival. And, and think about a people who were not used to public lighting, right? There were, there were no street lamps. There were no headlights on their chariots. 
They, they, they had no, like, at night, it was a candle or not at all. And a lot of times they wouldn't burn candles late because it was a waste. So imagine being in an outdoor space that's entirely lit up. You don't experience it ever except there. And so that one time, tens of thousands of people would have been, maybe 100,000 or more would have been on the Temple Mount, around the Temple Mount, celebrating that. I used the example of a few weeks ago of the 4th of July in Boston. So the festival happens, you know, 100,000 people downtown, and, and uh, you know, at the end, like, we're all, it's all dark, and the light, the, the fireworks light up the sky, the Charles is lit up, the, the city is lit up, like, the entire landscape's lit up just moment after moment after moment after moment. And then the big finale, right, the, the most. And then it ends, and then a voice comes out on the loudspeaker. I am the light of the world. Whoever walk, for, follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That would have been weird, right? It would have been. It would be bizarre. There would be questions. There would be what? The voice was somehow very confident, <laughs> And yet so reassuring at the same time, right? And we would wonder, what the heck? Certainly at this moment, as Jesus was saying this out to the crowd, they were, they were bewildered. They were wondering, like, like, no, God is the light. God is the light that led us out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And, and, and we celebrate with these lights, and now you're saying you're the light. It would have caused a lot of questions for sure. This is the second of the I am statements that show up through the Gospel of John. There are seven signs that show up. It literally says, and this was a sign that Jesus did, beginning with the <clears throat> turning of the water and the wine uh, into wine at, at the wedding in Cana and uh, culminating in the uh, resurrection of Lazarus, which is a sign as well. And then there are seven statements, I am statements, that are peppered throughout the book as well, the uh, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, which we're looking at today. I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. So Jesus is building out, each of these signs and each of these statements is about building out of a, an image of who he is as God in human form and what he's come to do, what his purpose in the world is. So in this context, as he says, I am the light of the world, we're going to focus on the I am part a little bit later, but um, what, is, what does he mean here by light? It would be very similar to the ways we think about light. Light brings life. Quite literally, there would be no life without light. If you don't believe me, take a house plant and put it in a closet, right? It doesn't do well. Uh, lights, another one, light symbolizes truth, purity, and goodness, we use the language, come into the light, or the lights went on for her. From creation on, God's character is often associated with light. <clears throat> light also makes things clearer. Back before we had iPhones, we had these things called flashlights, and you would open the you know, turn the flashlight on, and it would light up your path so you could see the way. Light also brings healing. God designed our bodies quite literally to get an essential nutrient, Right, essential vitamin by being in sunlight, vitamin D, right? And, and there's been studies, tons of studies on what happens if you do not get vitamin D. It's not good, really hurts your body. Um, and then light also um, brings joy. Daylight savings time brings sadness. 
Light brings joy, daylight savings time brings sadness. I've literally never met anyone that sees that date on the calendar in a couple of weeks and says, I can't wait. I love it. Dark at 4.30. Sun doesn't come up till 7.30. Man, I am ready for it, right? Nobody, no one does. It is the worst time of the year to be in Boston. It really is. Actually, I kind of argue, at least there's Christmas lights up until Christmas to kind of keep you going. And then after Christmas, it's just, January's just dark. Everybody turns off their Christmas trees, Christmas lights. Um, uh, it's funny, com- comedian Trevor Noah actually says he blames the British cruel attempt to colonize other nations on the weather. He said this, bad weather makes you a bad person. There's no one from a tropical climate who's trying to take over the world. You don't ever hear stories of Caribbean conquerors. There's no Troy the Terrible from Trinidad. If you're living in a beautiful paradise, there's no need to leave. <laughs> when Jesus says he's the light of the world, he's, he's saying, I am all of these things and more. But he's also saying, he doesn't say, I am a light in the world. He says, I am the light of the world. Definitive, right? It, he, he's saying not that I'm, I've come to point to the light, I've come to be a light, but I am the light. And in this, Jesus is also affirming another reality, darkness. Light only can be seen in the context of darkness. It only makes sense as it invades darkness. If it's only light, it is just reality. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world, meaning the world needs light. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not dwell in darkness. In other words, darkness is our mode of operation. It's our, it's our, our, our default setting. We are living in darkness. It's our default environment. And we don't, part of the problem with darkness is we don't see the truth, therefore we cannot acknowledge it. Darkness is representative of our understanding, of our understanding, our darkened understanding, but also for our individual propensity for evil. You see, evil isn't just bad things we do towards other people. We can point to that. We said this, did this, hurt those people this way. We were selfish in that moment. <clears throat> but it is, also, it is internally evil as well. You know, evil Evil is evil or sin is sin because it is inherently against God, not because it hurts someone else. That's the, it's weird. The modern modern moral framework, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone, it must be good. But that's a terrible ethic because you can do things to hurt yourself and that's not good. Sin is sin, not because you and I ultimately decided sin or wrong or hurtful. It is sin because it is against God's creative order. And it is no wonder when those things happen, we hide them. We bring them into darkness. You have done this thing, you have done things this week. You have thought thoughts. You have said things that you do not want anyone else in this room to know about. Me too, right? Like, let's just be honest about that. There is a darkness, a reality that we all struggle with. And how can darkness come into the light without being changed? Some of you long to experience light. There's areas of your heart, your history, your current circumstances that are just in the dark. Some of those things were things that were done to you. You didn't do those things, but you carry those things and they're a reality for you. Or there's a part of of actions or habits or ways of thinking in your life that you just kind of know are dark. There's a darkness there. 
And Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. I shine light into those dark areas. If you follow me, it's an invitation in. If you, anyone who follows me, this is a language of discipleship. This is a language of being an apprentice of Jesus, being with Jesus. If you follow me, you will have the light of life. So Jesus came to bring abundant life in the face of darkness, and he does that as the light of the world in the face of darkness. Secondly, Jesus is freedom for the captive. This second contrast is connected to the first one, but Jesus picks up this analogy of freedom versus slavery. Now, I know the idea of being in slavery or bondage, personal bondage, and not being free is, it goes over like a lead brick in our city, right? All you want to you argue with someone, just tell them you're not, they're not really free. Of course they're free. I, get, I can do what I want, right? We, but the problem is we're mistaking volition, the ability to make a decision, with freedom to make absolute decisions. That's not the same thing. The ability to make decisions does not mean you are actually equally free to make the, either of those decisions. There are things constraining us if you'll stop and look at your heart. Sometimes you feel like something's actually controlling you, don't you? That thing you don't want to do. You know it's not good. You know it's not good for you. You know it's not good for someone else, but you do it anyway. That way of thinking that you know is destructive. It is not healthy. It does not lead to life, and yet you choose to do it. C.S. Lewis once said, no man knows how bad he is till he's tried very hard to be good. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. If you doubt me, do this experiment. Get up tomorrow morning and just don't sin. Okay, just, and I'll keep it very simple. I know there's a lot of rules in scripture. I'll just keep it very simple. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. That's the first thing, just, just do that. And then secondly, any person you come across, you encounter, you see on the T, you work with, even that jerk you know, coworker you have, just love them like you love yourself. Oh, and by the way, don't have any bad thoughts and certainly don't say any bad words. Got that? I wouldn't make it past brushing my teeth. Good luck. Let me know how that goes. Because if you do, great. I really would like to talk to you. Part of the darkness that Jesus talked about in this passage is our failure to to see and acknowledge how much bondage we really are in. How much sin really controls us, compels us, constrains us. We don't like to admit it. And Jesus says those who won't acknowledge it can't come to experience freedom. We have more information than any society in human history. We have more access to research, to medical information, to therapy, to self-help, to, um, you know, life hacks, you name it. And we cannot get our lives together, can we? We can't. We can't really be. You get that person who follows all of those rules. You know that person. You've got that person that, they, you know, they get up at the exact same time. They do the exact same workouts or on a regimen and they eat all the right foods and they go to bed at the right time and they don't drink and they eat, you know, whatever. And they're just, they, is it fun to be around them? 
even in following that, they've become so rigid, so legalistic, they're not actually really enjoying life. 99 times out of 100, it's just a desperate desire to control life, which makes them miserable and makes people around them miserable. We are not doing better. (laughs) I hate to say this, but we're not. We're not thriving. How many people do you know? Just just one per, just think of if you can think of think of one person in your life that you would say, "Man, she's free." I would describe her as living a free life. Man, he is he is just embracing a freedom. He just has a freedom as a person. We don't know anybody. Why? Well, there's one very logical conclusion. We're not actually free. We're not free to experience freedom. (laughs) We are free to make decisions. We're free to make your decisions. You can get up and walk out of here right now. You're free to do that. But you are not free to experience freedom because of something that has you in bondage. Listen to how Jesus contrasts freedom with him in slavery to sin. Verse 31, he says, Jesus, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And listen, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, the word abide there, John loves more than any other New Testament author. It's like more than 30 times in the gospel of John. It's the word, the Greek word meno, and it means to to dwell with, to be with, to make your home with, to remain with shows up a lot, and so we'll hear it a lot, but this, Jesus is saying, if you abide in my word, if you walk in my word, you know my word, you experience my word, you make your home in my word, you are my disciples. You are walking with me, is what he's saying. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Being in the word is one of the ways you abide with Jesus. And I would say, if reading and studying and spending time in God's word is a real struggle for you, I want to suggest something very simple. You have come to see it as optional. It's nice. It might even be a pretty good thing for you to do. But it's not essential. You're doing what you think is essential. Anybody forget to eat for a week? Anybody forget to go to work? Anybody you just got up and you're like, man, it's Thursday. I knew I had something on the calendar. No, we do what we think is essential, but there is some lie in our mind and our heart that we have bought into that I can be mature, I can love Jesus, I can follow Jesus, I can, flow, I can let Jesus flow through me, I can experience freedom without being in Jesus's word. Go ask a Christian in a persecuted country how that works. Is being in God's word optional? No, they would say, oh, it's essential. I have to have it. I need it. I'm desperate for it. There are stories of Christians who literally at churches where they, they, they took out, they took, had one Bible. They couldn't even get a bunch of Bibles because there was so, persecution was so bad. So they literally divided the Bible up. I know you're like, oh my gosh, they cut up a Bible? They did. They, but they gave sections to different believers so that if anybody was caught, they wouldn't lose the whole Bible. And those Christians would memorize and learn and dwell on their little sections for days and days and weeks, and then they would trade it with somebody else. 
And we have more Bibles than we could count. And we can't find time to be in it. Is it any wonder we're not experiencing some freedom? I'm not being legalistic here. I'm not saying, oh, you gotta spend an hour every day. That'd be great. I'd be very surprised. A little experiment for you. Go spend an hour every day this week in the Bible and then come back next Sunday and tell me your life isn't different. I would bet you 10 to one, you will come back. I will, you take me up on it. I will give you $50. (laughs) You spend an hour each morning this week in God's word, praying and reading, and you come back to me at the end next Sunday and you just say, Bland, you know what came down to it? Just no difference. Nothing. I just got nothing. What is keeping you from it then? Are you free? Are you free to do the thing that brings you freedom? No. Some area of your life, some area of your mind, some area of your heart as a believer, you have allowed bondage. All right, enough on that. They answered him. <laughs> we are offspring. See why I could do a whole series on this text. <laughs> they off- answered him. We are offspring of Abraham. We've never been a slave to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. A slave's position is not secure. They can be cast out. But Jesus' position remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Ironically, these religious leaders are like, we're free while they were under Roman occupation and not actually free to do whatever they wanted. In fact, Israel had been under a lot of occupations over the years. So truthfully, Israel had not been free very much. But they were saying, no, we're free, I'm free. Just like our current cultural moment says, we are experiencing freedom. But that is, is that what we see when we look out on the news, look out in the relationships of people around us? Is it freedom? Is that... Is that Is that freedom? Now, I'm not talking about freedom to make decisions. We live in a culture, praise God. It's a good thing. We have a lot of freedom. If if you're middle class or above in America, in the West, you typically have way more freedoms than most human beings who've ever lived. That's not a bad thing. I'm not knocking that. I'm just simply saying in that, we still are not experiencing freedom. That should tell us something. But Jesus said, if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. And what does that mean? It means you are free to be who you were created to be. You see, my freshman year in college, when I met Jesus, Jesus began a work in me. He set me free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And then he was, uh, since then has been setting me free from sin in my daily life. I am more free right now than I was 30 years ago. Not free yet, Fully free is in the sense of I, I don't sin. But, but sin does not have the same hold on me it once had. I'm not thinking the same way I used to think. I'm experiencing more freedom, not based on my circumstances, but based on who I am in Christ. Freedom from shame, freedom from guilt, freedom from fear. So Jesus brings freedom to the captive. Thirdly here, Moving on, Jesus' truth in a world of lies. Let's now Jesus address the religious leaders, verse 43 through 47. He goes, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. That's just harsh. I mean, from, 
from the mouth of Jesus, your dad is Satan. Like that's, that's harsh, but he's speaking the truth to them. And you are, your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer because he knew, Jesus knew at this moment, these guys wanted to murder him. He said, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever's of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Now, I could I go a long time on this one, but I'm going to throw out a book that I don't... I throw out books time to time. I'm telling you, this is a book every Christian should read. I'll just say it that way. It's definitely in the, my top 10 best books I've read probably in 20 years. Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. You should pick it up. If you've not picked it up, Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. It's like 4.8 stars, a couple thousand reviews or more on Amazon. It is, he's a great writer and you will never come to understand how the enemy uses lies to deceive you more than through that, that book. And I pulled some stuff from him in this message. But I know in Boston, we've graduated past the idea of the devil, right? We are way too smart to believe there's a guy running around with pointy ears and a pitchfork and he's you know, getting people. Well, the good news is you don't have to believe in that because that's not actually the devil Jesus is describing. That is some weird thing from church history and art, right? <laughs> The devil that Jesus describes is way more sinister than that and beautiful. Like we'd be tempted to worship him because he, is an, he was an angelic being. He was, based on what we understand, one of the greatest angels. He may be the most powerful being in the universe outside of, of God. And his power comes to human beings in lots of different ways. Last week I used the term, or a couple weeks ago I used uh, that Jesus, uh, um, Revelation refers to Satan as the accuser of the brethren, right? Like that's one thing he does. But I've, I've really kind of come to use a term. It's not a biblical term. It's an encompassing biblical term, like a summary term of who, how would you describe Satan in one word? He's the anti-creator. God is the creator. Satan is the anti-creator. Why? Because the, the universe was created for the glory of God. The whole earth is full of God's glory. And you and I are made in the image of God. Satan wants to burn the whole thing down. It is it, the best character in a movie that I've ever seen that, that I think pictures this. I know there's many, and there's others that are great as well, but um, The Dark Knight, the Joker, it was an interesting character. He wasn't motivated by money. He didn't want power. He didn't care if everybody knew his name. He just simply wanted to watch the world burn. That's what Satan wants to do. And he knows you, and he knows your number, right? Like he's gotten past your filter on your, tech, on your phone. Like he, he knows he can text you directly at any point. And there's no S-T-O-P, you know, you, <laughs> you can't stop receiving these. He will get to you. C.S. Lewis also once said, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. To be a follower of Jesus means you're in a war, thrown into the middle of a battlefield. And the enemy, according to John 10.10, which we'll get into in a month or two, is, uh, his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus highlighted that the primary tool of Satan against you and me is lies or deceptive ideas. So you can, 
um, see this should be on the screen, just some definitions that can be helpful for understanding how he works. So when Jesus refers to the truth, what's the most simple definition of truth? It's reality. It's just reality. And reality is what you run into when you're wrong, right? If I walk off this building and I think I'd, I, I could fly, I run into reality. doesn't matter what I think. I will run into it. Lies are unreality. They're that which does not correspond to truth. And then the ideas are assumptions about reality or working theories about life or the good life that you and I live by. You have a set of ideas right now as to what leads to the abundant life, what leads to full life, what will make you happy, right? What will give you satisfaction to your soul? And the enemy knows these things. This is the world he operates. We create mental maps in our minds to navigate life, relationships, morality, purpose, and everything. And where the devil came to Eve in the garden, we often think, again, when we, when we think about the devil with this pitchfork, we think of like going to war, fighting against us, right? Like, ah, you know, and I've never seen that. I, I know there's people that have had de demonic possession or oppression, who've been near demons around them. I think I've been around a few in my life. I'm not spiritually, I don't have the gift of discernment, so, but, but I have some reasons to believe I was. Um, but the enemy doesn't come that way. He's not a horror movie character. They're hiding around a corner to freak you out. He's a brilliant, gifted, sinister being with an idea that he plants in your mind. John Mark Comer said this, and this is maybe one of my favorite lines from him. When the serpent came to the woman in the garden, he did not come with a stick or a sword, but with an idea. That idea takes root. It's like inception, right? It, it takes root and it changes everything in our lives. And this was mankind's original ongoing sin problem. We could, this idea that we could define light, truth, freedom, and reality for ourselves apart from God. That's the nature of your, of your sin. I know truth. I know freedom. I can determine reality. That's what you're saying when you're sinning. And Comer sums up the strategy of the devil. He says, the devil's strategy are deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires in us that are normalized in a sinful or broken society. Besides those three things, you're doing good, right? You're killing it. You're totally free. You are, out, apart from those three things, you are totally free to make right decisions. Do you see how we're kind of doomed? I mean, how can you overcome the deceitful ideas that enter into your mind from the enemy, your, your own deceitful desires that, 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 that connected with those deceptive ideas, and then you look out in a world and it says, this will make you happy and that will make you happy and do this thing. It's no wonder we're running headlong into sin. It's no wonder though we have prosperity and security and we have uh, resources and theoretically we ought to be more connected to human beings than we have ever been, right? 30 years ago, if you wanted to talk to someone who was not near you, you had to call them and hope they were home or hope their, their car phone rang, right? Or they had their brick, you know, back then they were about this big. 
But think about that. That was, that was how you communicated. We have more people, more access to people. Why are we lonely? Why in the world are we full of such anxiety? We should have such community around us. We should be so rich. We have prosperity, but relational poverty. It would almost point to the idea that there is something deceptive going on. That what we think leads to life is not doing that. What we think leads to freedom is not delivering. And I have bought into these ideas and you have bought into the ideas. And Jesus is saying, I am the truth that can invade your life and set you free from bondage to these ideas that are destroying you. That's why one of the reasons Jesus came as a teacher While he is the way, he's also calling us to repent or turn away from one way of thinking or one way of living and and press into another. Change your mental maps. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the final reality here, final point is a reality that Jesus is absolute reality. Listen to this last day, but I'll make a couple of comments. Verse 53 through 59, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, now truly, truly means really truthy, right? I mean, he's, he's not like, hey guys, this is an idea I'm gonna throw out. He's like, this is reality that you need to understand. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, which is terrible English grammar, but it's great theology. I'll explain why. And they picked up some stones and tried to stone him, but he didn't let them because it wasn't time. Um, but the phrase I am, if you know the Bible at all, if you're new, this is, you're like, that's weird. Why would Jesus say I am? Is he saying, I mean, like, okay, so I've been around, I lived before Abraham. Like, okay, so he's eternal. No, no, it's way more than that. You see, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush in, in Exodus three, he revealed himself to him and he said, Moses was like, who are you? I gotta tell the people in, in, in Egypt or people who you are. And he goes, just tell them I am. Now, that, that's translated, you may have heard Yahweh, that's what that is, or Jehovah, Latin is Jehovah. And in your Bible, it's signified with a capital L and a small cap O-R-D. Anytime you see that in the Bible, it's different than a capital L and lowercase O-R-D. Capital L, small caps O-R-D, is always Yahweh. That's what it's telling you. And so when, when he says, I am Jesus is connecting himself with the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's saying, I am God. I'm God in human form. And the, and the I am is such a, an amazing name, right? It's a proper name for God. Like my name is Bland. When we meet God in heaven, he's gonna go, hi, nice to meet you, I am. <laughs> and, and, and that's God's name. And, and yet it tells us so much about him. 
everything else in the universe, including you, you and me and every atom in our bodies, is dependent and contingent and finite. And he alone is ultimate reality of which everything else derives from and must reckon with. And Jesus is saying, I am. I'm not just the light of the world. I am the God of light. Light as a property exists because I created it. I am not just the truth and, not just, and won't just set you free, but I have created truth and anything that has existed against it is a lie. And so therefore to know me is to know truth. And I am freedom because I alone am going to be the one who's going to die to free you from the power of Satan, sin, and death. I am. I am ultimate reality. And one of the lessons through this entire passage, I hope you picked up on it, was Jesus didn't say, hey guys, I'm sorry you don't like what I said. That's, you know, cool. You kind of do your thing, right? No. He's saying, you will come to terms with me. You will reckon with me. You will deal with me. You will, you will come to me or you will suffer the consequences of not living in reality. You will not experience light. You will be in darkness. You will not experience freedom. You will be in bondage through eternity. You will not experience truth. Lies will consume you more and more and more and more. And unless, unless, I know we don't like the idea of God punishing people, but C.S. Lewis made, a, made an observation about hell. I don't think it's, an, I don't think it's a perfect picture of, ever, of a culminating or definitive picture, but I think it's part of it for sure. If somebody, and you know this, people, uh, if you've ever met like 85-year-old people, they're either really, really nice or they are like the worst people you've ever been around. Right? Why? Because it's the culmination of their life. If they're a bad person, their brain, their mind, their heart has locked into that and it is progressive. And if they were a good person, then they are a good, really great person when they're 85. Lewis said, what if that just goes on into eternity forever? And part of God's wrath on those who do not come to the truth, come to the light, is that he just says, go. You've chosen to believe lies. Go believe them into eternity. That's serious. That's weighty. But that's how much Jesus cares about us, that he's going to speak the truth. He wants us to know light. He wants us to know freedom. He wants us to know truth. He wants us to be connected to ultimate reality. And that's the invitation today for all of us. The name of our church, City on a Hill, is based on Matthew 5, 14, where Jesus says, you are the light of the world. I don't know about you, that feels like a burden to me right now. Like thinking of, I mean, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I totally get that. Cool, Jesus, you're the light. But I'm the light of the world. We are the light of the world. We're doing that. We're, you know, it's almost like we've got like a, a one lumen bulb, each of us. And if you've ever seen something that low, it's not much. But if you can get a lot of one lumen bulbs into a room together, into an area together, you can, it's like candles, right? You can, 
Uh, one or two candles are not gonna light this room, but when we do candlelight service here, what happens? The room gets lit up. So as we bring Jesus together as a community and we live, out, live that out together, we are a city on a hill shining the light of Jesus to those around us. But you take that light into your workplaces. You take that light into your homes. You take that light into your communities and your buildings. And you are walking and living among people who do not know the truth. They have never experienced the light. They have never experienced real freedom. And they are longing for it deep in their soul somewhere, even if they won't tell you. Should you and I be content that they don't even know about it? I'm convinced of this one very simple reality about people in the city of Boston. They do not actually know the gospel. They think they do. They think they know what Christianity is about. But they do not know the promises and the reality of what this passage teaches today. And there are friends, there are neighbors, there are coworkers, there's family around you that Jesus has put around you who desperately need this and God is already stirring their hearts. Will you go? Will you talk to them? Who are you gonna invite to Easter this year? That's what we're gonna talk about, right? Pray and ask Jesus to direct you to one person. And as we close, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm gonna, we don't do this a lot, but I wanna ask you to reflect for just a moment. We'll have Brandon will play and, um, and then we'll move into communion. But I want you to ask Jesus, what areas of your heart and your mind and your life still are in darkness? What areas of your heart and your mind and your life are still in bondage? What idea are you believing that the enemy has fed you and it is keeping you from experiencing the life Jesus wants for you? Let's take a moment and pray. Now lead us. Jesus, we need your light. We need freedom. We need truth deep in our souls. In a world that feels like sinking sand every step we take. We need you as the rock that our feet are on. I pray you would show us that thing that is in the darkness, that thing that is in bondage, that thing that is deceiving us, that idea that is deceiving us right now. May we bring it to you. 
you've set us free. You've promised if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. We ask for that freedom now. And as we take the bread and the cup as followers of Jesus, we take it knowing you have done all that is needed for us to experience the fullness of life even today. In your great name, amen.